Welcome back to the Resus X podcast. And before we get into this week's podcast on cardiogenic shock, it's time for a quick plug. We're opening the registration for the Resus X ROSC conference that happened just two weeks ago live. And if you missed it and you want to learn from Alma to Corey Slovis, Scott Weingart, Tarlan Hadidi, and all the amazing speakers, then you best head over to resusx.com right now and register. For people who register early, we're throwing in a special extra bonus video content gift. That was a mouthful, but this offer is limited. So if you're interested in getting the conference and getting our free bonus, then head over now. This week, Colin McCloskey is going to be talking about cardiogenic shock. Now, if you like to care of cardiogenic shock and you're good at it, then don't listen to this podcast. But for everybody else, and that's most of us, cardiogenic shock is one of the most challenging types of shock to deal with. Making the diagnosis is hard. You should be facile with ultrasound and taking a look at the heart. But is it the RV? Is it the LV? Is it some sort of valvular abnormality? Colin is going to break it all down for us in this podcast. So let's sit back and soak up all the good education from Master Educator, Dr. Colin McCluskey. Hey folks, I'm Colin McCluskey. I'm an EM intensivist that works both in the cardiothoracic ICU as well as the emergency department. And up where I live in the ICU, the predominant form of shock that I get to treat is cardiogenic. And despite all of the advancements that we've had with both advanced heart failure therapies when it comes to medication management, as well as mechanical circulatory support, Folks, all comers who have cardiogenic shock still have a 50% in hospital mortality. And now the most common cause of this is acute myocardial infarction. And to be honest, you're not going to miss this. We have entire systems of care throwing EKGs in front of you in the emergency department and then getting them to the cath lab expediently to make sure that we identify these folks. However, it's the more occult cardiogenic shock that I think we miss. And if we miss or delay diagnosis, that mortality is only going to get worse. How are we going to, in the sea of sepsis, find cardiogenic shock? First things first, cardiogenic shock is a systolic blood pressure problem. You're going to have a low systolic blood pressure as your ejection is low. If you have a low systolic blood pressure, you need to stop and think beyond the step one bundle. One of the problems with step one or being in a sepsis metric environment is that all shock is presumed sepsis until proven otherwise. And you're going to be given antibiotics, getting blood cultures, fluid loading. And if you're not actually considering cardiogenic shock as a diagnosis, none of those things will help. And some might actually hurt. If you have a low systolic blood pressure and it's narrow plus cool extremities, you may be dealing with cardiogenic shock. What do I mean by narrow pulse pressure? This is a systolic blood pressure problem. The folks that are 80s over 60s are more likely to have a cardiogenic cause of their shock then vasopsis is a our problem and you'll see diastolic hypotension. Next, the body compensates for this low EF by really driving up the systemic vascular resistance. That makes the extremities cooled, maybe even mottled. There's still place for the bedside physical exam in 2022. However, the next thing to do is look at volume status and grab your echo because that's really going to clinch this diagnosis. The other uh, pathologies that can cause a narrow pulse pressure hypotension with a low systolic blood pressure are obstructive or hypovolemic shocks. Your ultrasound is going to be able to ascertain all of this. If you don't see a big pericardial effusion, don't see tension, they have plenty of volume, they're not hemorrhaging, and then you see this very sad left ventricle, you're dealing with cardiogenic shock. 
you should echo all of your hypotensive patients, especially those that you think are just septic, because they may have a component of cardiogenic shock that will also need to be treated. So please echo the sick, do a rush exam on all of these folks. Now, you've identified cardiogenic shock in the sea of sepsis. Congratulations. What's next? The underlying cause. As I said, we have entire systems of care for acute myocardial infarction, and these folks probably need reperfusion with a PCI. However, if it's not a big OMI or a STEMI on your EKG, the next most common cause is decompensation of chronic heart failure. Now, these folks will probably have a prior heart history that you'll be able to ascertain from your electronic medical record. Or on your echo, like the one before, you'll see thin walls that make you think that this is a long-standing process. However, if it's not an acute myocardial infarction or decompensated heart failure that is known, you're going to have to start thinking about some zebras. We've lived in a COVID world for the last couple of years, and viral-related myocarditis is certainly a cause of de novo heart failure. Iatrogenic causes, such as any cardiac toxin, calcium channel, or beta blockers, are also common. A variety of entities, hypo and hyperthyroidism, as well as stress cardiomyopathies, are also things that can cause a cardiogenic shock in a relatively normal human. Now it's time to resuscitate. And inopressors before inotropes. Certainly, you've identified cardiogenic shock, and you're excited about maybe using dobutamine or milanone for the first time. But first things first, defend the map. Norepinephrine is our first-line inopressor in cardiogenic shock, as recommended by the ACCAHA. Once you get a map up to 65 or 70, now you can echo the patient again and see what that squeeze looks like. You'd be amazed how well the heart will squeeze when it has good coronary perfusion pressure. Norepinephrine is the easy button. It's my desert island inopressor of choice and the one that probably is going to be the best used by your team. You have the map up to CIF to C5 and 70 and still the LV looks bad. And now you see other signs of malperfusion. They have acute kidney injury, liver dysfunction, they're not peeing. Maybe they're getting a little bit altered. That lactate's rising. Now it's time for our inotropic medications. And there's really two that I use routinely, which is dobutamine versus milrinone. Now, there is equipoise on which is the better agent for cardiogenic shock. The best RCT on this was published a year or so ago, was the Do-Re-Mi study, which actually showed equivalence in hospital mortality, need for CPR, or escalation to mechanical circulatory support in folks with either dobutamine or milrinone. I use them depending upon the patient in front of me. Now, dobutamine, easier to use has a quick on, quick off, has a really low half-life, and it's going to be a little bit more flexible in the early parts of an unstable resuscitation. Now, it has a dose-dependent response as far as what subtype of catecholamine you hit. Lower doses, less than 5 micrograms, going to be more beta. But once you get higher, over 15, you're going to get more alpha and may actually hurt your cardiac output. Now, milrinone is my personal favorite inotrope, and that's because, one, it actually bypasses the beta receptor. And in folks with chronic heart failure, who I see a lot of in the CTICU, it's just more effective than dobutamine. But that comes at the cost of a pretty long half-life and a long initiation of action. So it's not as flexible or nimble as dobutamine. So dobutamine, probably for early folks with de novo cardiac shock, known for more established. Either way, you're going to be supported by the evidence is using this. Now, it's important to know that both of these will drop systemic blood pressure. That's why you have your norepinephrine on first. Now, if you've defended the map, you've added an inotrope, and the folks are still not doing well. You're still having poor and perfusion. It's time to build a robot person. And 
really employ mechanical circulatory support devices. There are a variety of these now in our advanced heart failure centers. And the entire premise is that we are offloading the heart by doing some of that work with a machine. When we look at the shock two registry, the folks with the best mortality, or sorry, the best survivor, survival following cardiogenic shock had the highest cardiac power output. We're trying to artificially improve the cardiac power output with these devices. Which is the right device for the patient in front of you? That's going to be a multidisciplinary discussion, but you should know that really, I think about these devices and how much support they can actually give the failing heart. The smallest support is a balloon pump, which kind of directly offloads less than a liter of cardiac output, all the way up to 10 liters of flow that you can achieve with a VA ECMO if you have good drainage. Depending upon where the patient is in your system and what capabilities are, these different devices will come into play. But you should know that the balloon pump is the least, the Impella 2.5, two and a half liters of flow, 5.0, five liters of flow, all the way up to ECMO. One thing you should know is the only real way to ocular failure or right ventricular failure in most centers is going to be with ECMO. But you're not going to make this decision in a vacuum. You're going to involve other colleagues because there's no real RCT evidence that mechanical circulatory support improves mortality. There was one single center study that trended that if you use ECMO early in cardiogenic shock folks, they probably do better, but it was not statistically significant. Now, the arrest trial that looked at eCPR for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and then cardiogenic shock did find a survival improvement, but that was in a very selected cohort in a very evolved system. That may not be right for you or your system unless you have the, these systems in place. It takes a village to manage cardiogenic shock. As the initial resuscitationist, make the diagnosis, start inopressor therapy with norepinephrine, and then add the inotrope that makes sense for your patient. If you're going to then proceed to mechanical circulatory support, you're going to need all the help you can get in your system. My system has a shock team that has a heart failure cardiologist, a cardiac surgeon, and a CT intensivist that we can make the best decision for the patient, whether it's escalation linotropes, choosing the right device, and ultimately disposition planning. This is something that if you are part of the big center should be in place, but if not, you should get them to an advanced heart failure center that has its expertise. So cardiogenic shock, first things first, make the diagnosis suspected in anyone who's hypotensive, especially with a narrow pulse pressure and cool extremities. We pigeonholed everyone into having sepsis until proven otherwise, and that can lead to premature closure. Please echo the sick, a low EF, in a hypotensive patient should consider cardiogenic shock. Improve the MAP first with norepinephrine, then re-echo. You may not need inotropes as long as your coronary perfusion pressure is adequate. And then if they're failing inotropic therapy and you're considering mechanical circulatory support, you need to get everybody on board and load the boat. If you have a shock team or whatever mechanism within your system, get them involved early so we can manage these complex patients as quickly and effectively as possible.